So, we're in Foundations, and um, I haven't received just a little chiding that we haven't gotten to Genesis 1-1 yet, but I can take it, and the reason we're doing this is you need to clear the decks in order to get to Genesis 1-1, because there's so much false teaching out there. Um, It's been a long ploy of liberal theologians to present theories that they dispute anything supernatural. And some of the mainline denominations back in the 50s and 60s refuted the virgin birth, miracles done by Jesus Christ, anything supernatural. We called those liberal theologians. Today, they've kind of taken a different shape. And their interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 is non-literal. So they're denying the fact that God could create the heavens and the earth and everything within them in six literal 24-hour days. Sadly, that thinking has entered mainstream evangelicalism, and there are many well-known evangelicals that now no longer accept the literal historical view of Genesis 1 and 2, maybe all the way to Genesis 11. They call it prehistory, and uh, they have a multitude of excuses why, or explanations why they don't take it as literal. But as with liberal theologians before them, the sticking point in their thinking is that science, so-called, everything post-evolution theory, you've seen men struggle to reconcile Genesis with scientific facts, they would say. And God's word always comes out subservient to science when you put science and the word of God together. Science always seems to take the precedent. And Genesis is seen to be anything but an accurate, literal, historical account of creation. Science declares the earth to be very, very old. And so the Genesis account must fit into that science in these men's minds. And these are men of stature in the church and are teaching these things. Now, we've already discussed the devastation of foundations being destroyed and what can the righteous do, Psalm 11.3. We talked about evolution, a therapeutic nation that views wickedness and sinfulness as a sickness or a mental health issue. Biblical illiteracy so that The Bible has not been being taught from the pulpits in the church for very long. Uh, I'd say the last 20 or 30 years, it's taken a downturn, and we have have short little how-to sermons rather than just expositing the Word of God. We talked just a little bit about genre and how that affects the way we interpret Genesis, because many would see it as anything but literal, uh, poetry, etc. So I just want to recap this real quickly and then get into angels. Now, a word about angels. What on earth are you doing, Lynetti? I thought we were going to be in Genesis. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, there's this snake that's introduced to us. And that snake is identified as Satan, and Satan tempts Eve, and Eve and Adam perpetrate the fall of humanity into sin. Now, if I just started in Genesis 1-1 the first week and just kind of kept on going and everything, 
and I got to Genesis 3, you'd go, where did that come from? Did God create evil? No. No. So we've got to clear the decks. So that's why I'm teaching on angelology. We will get to Genesis 1.1, and when we do, you're going to be ready to rock, okay? But until that time, bear with me. So we talked last week just a little bit about genre. And it's long been recognized that genre plays an important role in interpretation. I gave you the illustration of we don't read comic book pages or comic pages in a, in a newspaper. Who's, does anybody get newspaper here anymore? I, I'm serious. I want you to raise your hand if you get the newspaper anymore. Not one. Not one person. So this is, you know, a, a moot point here. A newspaper is what we used to get our news from before Google kind of like a hymnal, you know. Uh, and there, there used to be comics at the back of the newspaper. But there was also an editorial page where people would opine on what their thoughts were about certain current affairs and things. You would not read the comic page in the same way that you would look at the editorial page because they're two different genre, okay? Suffice it to say, genre impacts the way that we interpret things. Now, I gave you a list of eight reasons why we should view Genesis 1 through 11, but Genesis 1 and 2 especially, as literal. One is that it is narrative, and it centers on people and events. This is what Old Testament history is like. It's narrative. Number two, it is biographical. It tells a story about God's work in this world through people. You can trace the lines. There's genealogies. Number three, it is subjective, seen through the perspective and interpretation of the authors. And the first two chapters are are seen through the eyes of the author, God. Nobody else was present at creation. God was there. And number four, it's theocentric, presenting itself as the word of God and not just a human record. We are presuppositionalists at this church. That is a big word to say, we just believe God at what he says. He starts off his book with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. He doesn't give out a whole bunch of information of why we should trust that God exists. He just presupposes from the beginning that he is. And he moves on from that point. That's presuppositionalism. It's used as an apologetic Presuppositional apologetics take as fact that God is and moves on from that point. Evidentialism is another way of doing apologetics, and that tries to prove God's existence by pointing at nature and various things and so forth and so on. We believe in presuppositionalism rather than evidentialism because we believe that God started with the presupposition that he is. Okay, a lot of words there. Number five, it is selective, as all the details that do not relate to the central message are ignored. You will find everything that we need to know in the scriptures, and when it touches science, it is true, not exhaustive. You will not give us all the details of everything that we might find interesting, but where it touches science, where it touches reality, it's always true and maybe not exhaustive because it's selective. Number six, it is 
uh, historiographic presenting itself as a writing of history. It literally presents itself as history. And it reads as history. And number seven, it is consistently contextual, not just telling the past, but relating it to the needs of the present. It's, you have to understand it in the context of things. And if you read Genesis 1 through 11, in just a natural reading, okay, erase science, erase everything you ever learned about science in school that was erroneous and so forth. Try to just get a clearing slate. If you just read Genesis 1 all the way through 11, you'd take it as history. You'd take it as a narrative telling you something about what took place and who the players were and so forth. You would never get long ages out of this, ever. That has only come about recently. And then number eight, it is interpretive, yielding the author's assessment of the events often by way of editorial asides. And we'll see that as we go through it. Now, I did mention that one of the genres that is really prevalent these days is poetry. They say Genesis 1, 1, and 2 is poetry. That is not true because there is poetry in the Bible. There is a genre of poetry. There is a style of writing that is poetry, and Genesis 1 and 2 do not fit it. And when you compare, uh, just say, Genesis uh, chapter 1 with Psalm 104, you will see the story of the creation in two different genres. One is historical narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in Psalm 107, you'll see it presented in a poetical fashion. And you'll mark the difference. It's very clear. Genesis 1 and 2 is short, concise, propositional statements. And when I get to Genesis 1, turn there just for a second, I can't. Genesis 1, when you get to Genesis 1, 1 and 2 are kind of like the prologue. It just tells us about things. And then in verse 3 it says, Then God said, And in verse 6, it says, then God said. And in verse 9, it says, then God said. Verse 11, then God said. Verse 14, then God said. Verse 20, then God said. Verse 24, then God said. Verse 26, then God said. Those thens are very important. Okay? When you you look at it lexically, when you look at the original language, Those thens are markers of narrative. They're what carries the story on. It's called a vav consecutive in the Hebrew language. I'm not going to go into all that. But that marks that this is a narrative that's being portrayed here. It's It's not lyrical. It's not poetic. So the first thing that we can say about poetry is that there is a recognizable form of Old Testament poetry and Genesis 1, 1 and on through is not written like that. Now, all that, let's get to the angels again. A quick recap, okay? And let's open with a word of prayer as we get to this. Father God, as we come and talk about these supernatural beings, we um, understand that it, it, it stretches our minds because we can't see, taste, smell, touch these, these creatures that you created And Lord, 
help us to open our eyes to what your word says about them because they truly do exist. There are good and there are evil angels. And Father, they do have a bearing upon us even as we're living out our lives on earth. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd open the eyes of our understanding through your word today and that we would be greatly encouraged as well as informed. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we talked about the creation of angels uh, last week, and I quoted Nehemiah 9, 6. It says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, referring to angels, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Okay? Stars do not worship. It's not talking about the stars of heaven. There are other places where hosts of heaven is referring to the stars, but here we see these hosts are angelic beings worshiping God. The host of angels, all of them, good and evil. Listen to me. Number one, angels were created by God and they were all initially created good and they were all initially created instantaneously. They don't propagate. So the number of angels that God created in the beginning is static. They're all created. There are no additions. And they're immortal. There are no subtractions. They don't die. Okay? So we read in Psalm 148.5, For he commanded and they were created, referring to the angels. Number two, angels have personality. They're not these ghost-like supernatural things floating around that have no personality. Personality consists of intelligence, emotions, and volition. I can't wait till I get my glorified body or I go to heaven at my death and I'm able to see angels and communicate with them. That's going to be cool, right? Because they are personalities. They all have personalities. And if you look at even the examples of the angels that you have, you have the real stoic ones that visited Abraham and then visited Lot. They don't say a lot. They're just kind of like, hmm, right? And then, and then you, have, you have Gabriel coming and giving announcements about uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, listen to the change. He's different than the two that went and visited Abraham and Lot. Okay, and, and then you've got, you've got Michael in the book of Daniel, and Michael is Michael. He has wings. He shouldn't have wings. This is Raphael's portrayal of Michael, the archangel. The only angels that have wings are cherubim and seraphim, and I don't believe he's a cherub. Okay, and when I say cherub, you're thinking of the little guy for Cupid, right? No, no, no. The two cherubs that were set to guard the tree of life when Adam and Eve were escorted out of Eden, right? They had flaming swords, these, these guys, and they have wings, okay? And the seraph, uh, seraphim do as well, singing, holy, 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 Lord God, in Isaiah chapter 6. Only two have wings. So they do have personality, and... <laughs> I don't know if I want to meet Michael or Gabriel. These, there's a rank also of angels. Number three, they were present when God laid the foundation of the earth. Job 38, 4 through 7. When did God create the angels? I'd say simultaneously or right before 
he created the heavens and the earth because it says that they shouted for joy at the laying of the foundations of the earth. So they were present already in existence when God created and laid the foundations of the earth. Number four, their number appears to be countless in Revelation 5.11 and Daniel 7.10. They are innumerable. We can't count them, but they're not infinite. They're not infinite. There is a number, but God knows that number, and we can't get there. Number five, they were all created at one time, as I mentioned. Number six, they do not procreate. So what was created is what still is of all the angels that ever were. Okay? One set company, they're, they're what is. Matthew twenty-two thirty is Jesus' words that says that their number does not increase. They do not marry and give in marriage like, like we do as human beings. We're different. Number seven, they are spirit beings. They don't have a physical body like humans do, according to Psalm 104.4. Their immaterial bodies appear to be unhindered by the physical laws of nature. They can, for instance, appear suddenly out of nowhere, and we know this in the Gospels, we see this happening. And, and they transport themselves through space rapidly in Luke 2.15, if you want to look that up. And, and they display superhuman strength. Think of the angels that came and rescued Peter out of prison. Um, and of course, um, that they're greater in might and power than humans. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says, angels are of greater might and power than human beings. So I remember when we were teaching about angelic beings to the Taliabo people over in Indonesia, um, they were chiding and, and making fun. And we just warned them, don't do that. And then we talked to them a little bit further about the archangel, Michael, and so forth. And, and they, they, they shut up. They were quieted by that. But they were feeling their oats because they knew God had created them. And so they felt like God is our hero, not these angels. And uh, that, was, that was funny. They seem to be genderless. However, at times they appear as adult males in the biblical narratives, but never as women or babies. Never as women or babies. We said the cherubs with the little cupids, that's, that's Hallmark's creation of angels. Uh, you don't find that anywhere. So when they do appear in material form, they appear as male. And we gave a number of instances of that. Uh, Genesis 18, Abraham looked up and saw three men coming. We know one was the Lord because uh, in Genesis 18.1 it says that the Lord visited Abram. The other two were angels and no wings. They appeared as men. And then those same two went down in Genesis 19.1 and met with Lot at the gate. Again, no mention of wings. He took them as men. And the men of the town that wanted to have physical relationships with them did not see them as angels. They saw them as men. So, and again, like I said, no wings. Number nine, two types of angels have wings. I already said that. Cherubim, Exodus 25, 20. Uh, the cherubim that were represented on the Ark of the Covenant had wings that stretched out and met over the Ark, right? So that's a representation of cherubim. And of course, the ones that I told you that were protecting 
uh, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and then seraphim in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, we'll get to their rank later. I'm going to be teaching about their rank in just a little bit if I can get to it. Uh, but there is, a, there is a whole hierarchy of angels. There, there are like chief angels, leaders, and, uh, and then ranks all the way down. Number nine, uh, number 10, they do appear as men, as I mentioned. I gave you that. Number 11, uh, they don't marry, and they're not given in marriage. So I, I used to always refer to them as the angelic race. But when we talk about a race, a race is self-propagating. And so I'm changing my terminology to that, uh, to be that they're a company. They're a company that was created by God. All at once, they don't get greater numbers or lesser numbers. They're a company of angels. And um, their order, angels have a distinct organizational structure ordained by God. There are cherubim who relate to protecting the holiness of God. There are seraphim who are connected with the worship of God. And the archangel or chief angel of God that uh, we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for instance, when uh, Christ returns, he will return with the shout of an archangel. And 13, their service. This is important to us. Angels display their dependence upon God through obedient service. Angels worship God above. They stood above and called out to one another, saying, holy, 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 in Isaiah 6. They perform the will of God in heaven. They enact the purposes of God on earth by serving him as messengers. They predict future events, according to Acts 27, 23. And they execute judgment, especially at the end of the age when you read about the angelic involvement uh, in Revelation. It's amazing. And thankfully, they protect God's people. They protect the heirs of salvation. Now, while there are not guardian angels, and we discussed this, so get the, the message from last week, the angels do minister to those who inherit salvation. Hebrews 1.14 tells us clearly, are they angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And so I believe it's safe to say that angels do watch over people, but we cannot find biblical instances of individuals with an individual angel assigned to them. Okay? There aren't guardian angels, but there are ministering angels that watch over their, uh, those that are going to inherit life, which would be believers. And then I said something that I rue that I said it, but I said it, and so I'm going to tell you. Okay? I said, I've experienced an influence that to me, I couldn't credit it with anything other than angels. And so everybody wanted to hear about that. So I'm giving you two instances when I was on the mission field, and I'm not pointing to myself as being special, except that I was a light bearer, one of two, that brought the gospel to a people that had never heard of God before. And so maybe, you know, there was something special about that. But one, I was, um, we were doing survey work. Now, this is before we even got into the Taliabo. I did survey work over uh, the eastern islands of uh, Maluku, and we visited these islands, and there was always 
uh, tribal people located in the center parts of the islands. And this, this Buru Island was uh, very mountainous, and we had to walk up over the mountains. And it was rainy season, and so when we came off the mountains, came down the mountain, in between every mountain range, there were flooding rivers. And so we were going across the flooding river, and uh, I and my survey partner both had these staffs or sticks because we were going from one large rock to another large rock. So the water was rushing between these rocks, and we felt if we could use the stick to hold us up to get past that and to get to the protection of that rock, we'd be able to get across the river and, and climb up the next mountain try to get to the interior where the people were. That worked really well until the last rock. My, my partner had already gotten ashore, and he was standing there thanking God and rejoicing. He had his staff still, and I was coming from the last rock, and I stepped into the stream that was flowing past it, maybe a step more to get to the shore, and I got swept off my feet. And I went down, and I thought, I'm dead. I let go of my staff. And my partner, for whatever reason, maybe I was screaming, I don't know, I can't remember, but he turned with his stick, and I grabbed onto his stick, and he pulled me out of it. And I'll tell you, I don't know what made him turn, but I believe that that was an influence of angelic help at that time. Saved my life. I would have been washed out to the ocean, for sure. (laughs) The river was really flowing. A second time, and this is even more dramatic... (laughs) I was coming home for Mary's birthday. I was out on surveys again. Uh, this is We were on the island of Taliabo. We lived in the middle of an island, a very primitive, primitive place. No roads, no cars, no electricity, no nothing. And there were lumber concerns on this island, and I was trying to get back home in time for her birthday. Okay, And the only way I could do it was hitch a ride with one of these lumber dump trucks great big huge dump trucks that went in these roads that were not roads at all. They were just kind of like plowed out by uh, uh, front end loaders and then these trucks would go on these roads to haul the lumber. And I was with a whole bunch of Indonesians. We were all packed in the back of this big old dump truck and we're going up this huge mountain, right? And on to the left, it's like, yeah, your clothes would be out of style by the time you got to the bottom of it. And on the right, it was a mountain still going up, and they had kind of cut across that with their their front-end loader so that there was a road. And as we're getting to the apex of that mountain, ready to start going downhill, and I'm trying to get to another place where I can make it home for Mary's birthday, we got almost to the apex, and he's trying to downshift. And I'm listening to the gears, and he got it. He got it locked up. I knew he got it locked up, and I thought, oh, my gosh. So I moved to the end of the edge of the truck, okay, closest to the mountain going up because I was ready to jump off because he got to the point, and then he started backing up. Just, you know, and and he didn't have it in gear, and I thought, this is it. I'm gone. And so he tried to edge, you know, turn his wheel so his truck would go up onto the mountain, hoping that that would stop him. And as he's turning up, I thought, I'm out of here. And I jumped out of, the, out of the dump truck. Now, these are big dump trucks. I jumped out of the dump truck. To the best of my knowledge, I hit the mountain, and then I saw myself going up over the front of a huge dump truck, the engine part, 
and I found myself sitting in the middle of the road. And he had gotten it in gear and stopped, and I'm just sitting in the middle of the road, and honest to Pete, what I said is, Lord, I'm getting too old for this. (laughs) But in retrospect, how on earth, I, I suppose if I was a liberal theologian, I'd just say, well, adrenaline kicked in, and I just, I had superhuman powers, okay? But I, I credit that to angelic help at that time. Um, those are two instances, okay? There were more. We just saw so many miracles um, on the part of the believers of Taliabo and so forth. So I definitely believe in the supernatural, and not in a, a sensational type of way, but they're definitely real. Well, I want to talk to you about fallen angels because this is preparation for Genesis chapter 3, even though we probably won't get there until next Christmas. But <laughs> God originally created all the angels together at one point, like I've mentioned, and they were originally all created good. So what happened? Their characteristics were, as I just uh, listed out for you, all those different elements of their character. But I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. You know how when we say, well, what does the Bible say about love? Your mind goes to 1 Corinthians 13. What does the Bible say about faith? Your mind goes to Hebrews 11. Okay. So what does the Bible say about angels, especially evil angels? Your mind should go to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. In both of those texts, and we'll read both of them, both of those texts will give you an understanding of the fall of Satan, okay, and where the evil angels actually came from, their origin. So in Ezekiel 28, I want to read to you, beginning in verse 11, both of these sections of scripture are addressed initially to a king, to a king, but then the verbiage in the context of these passages goes way beyond that earthly king, and you'll see what I mean. Verse 11, again, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel said, saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, I'm sorry, this is written to the king of Tyre, who was a real king, he was not in the Garden of Eden. And he wasn't having the seal of perfection. Any of these descriptions are beyond this king of Tyre. But it's contained in this uh, statement to the king of Tyre. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was yours, your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the ox, uh, onyx, and the jasper, etc. And the gold... The workmanship of your, um, of your settings and sockets was in you one day, one day that you were created, they were prepared. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub. The king of Tyre was not a cherub. He was a king. He, he was a man. But God's saying, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were... On the holy mountain of God, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until, big word, until unrighteousness was found in you. 
God did not create evil. Unrighteousness was found in his created being here. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Okay? So that is the first instance. Lucifer's sin, if you want to call it that. In his original state, Lucifer was unique among all the angels. He was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, according to Ezekiel 28.12. And his name, Lucifer, has been translated morning star or shining one. And scriptures refer to him as an anointed guardian cherub, Ezekiel 28.14. His exalted position gave him seemingly limitless access to the throne of God before iniquity was found within him. Created holy, Lucifer was blameless until the day he sinned. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. 28.15 And the nature of this sin is portrayed in two key passages in Scripture where God addresses Satan embedded in his announcements and pronouncements against the king of Tyre in Ezekiel. And then I want you to turn now to Isaiah uh, Isaiah 14, and we'll hear his pronouncements against the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. Listen to these words. It's backwards towards Genesis, Isaiah 14. Beginning in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. That's where we get Lucifer from. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God being the other angels, okay, the hosts of heaven, the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness? Okay, obviously, it's gone way beyond the king of Babylon. You see, Lucifer's sin originated in his heart. Rather than submit to God's authority, the angel clearly desired to exalt himself, to make himself like the Most High. The desire for autonomy with its roots in sinful pride is the origin of all evil. All evil. From from the time of his rebellion and consequent judgment, he is called Satan in the Bible, which means adversary. He is an adversary of God and everyone who follows God. Beloved, I want you to understand, we have an enemy of our souls that is incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. 
And though we might not joke and, 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 and play around like the Taliabo did, do we give him his proper place? Do we understand who he is? Because in 1 John, it tells us the whole world lies in his hands. You see, we are so materialistic, especially in the West. We're so inundated with, with everything from without telling us that there is no supernatural, that it's all fairy tale stuff, that we don't think about the supernatural things. And consequently, we're taken advantage of then by many temptations. Temptations roll right over us. But there is an enemy of our souls, and we need to fight against him. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Why? Because you have power. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2, lives within us. He's called the Holy Spirit. After his sin, Satan was banished from his original position in heaven and cast away from God's presence. And a full third of the angels followed him in their revolt against God. The book of Revelation symbolically portrays this heavenly event. It says, his tail, referring to him as a dragon there, or a great serpent, okay? His tail swept down one-third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. No, they're not stars. We're talking about angels here. That's found in Revelation 12.4. And the stars of heaven, which are fallen angels, are now called demons. They're evil spirits or unclean spirits in the Bible. And Satan is their prince or their ruler, according to Matthew 12, 24. Very real stuff, this. And just because we can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, When did Satan fall? When did this take place? When did this one-third be swept down to the earth? Well, I believe the scriptures are clear on this. The fall of Satan and the demons must have occurred somewhere between God's pronouncement of his creation as good in Genesis 1.31. He says he looked at everything that he had created, everything he had created, and I think that includes angels as well, and he pronounced them good. And the appearance of Satan in Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, says it's got to be between that time. The angels were already existent. We saw that they were joyful at the laying of the foundations of the earth, so they were already existent. God called everything that he had created good, and then all of a sudden, Genesis 3.1, up pops this, this adversary. So I believe that the fall of Lucifer and those one-third of angels, which is innumerable, the evil angels, had to take place between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1. And that's basically why I'm talking about angelology right now, to prepare us. And uh, we'll talk more about it at a later date. So he and all the angels that rebelled with him had to have fallen between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1. Now, whether Satan's fall occurred hours, days, years, we don't know after God uh, created them and before uh, they tempted Adam and Eve. We just don't have a time frame for that. Scripture does say uh, it doesn't really clearly state a time frame for us but we know it was before Genesis 3.1. Jesus, um, look at Luke chapter 10. 
real quickly with me. Looking at my time. Oh my. We're eternal. We can do this. Okay, Luke chapter 10, verse 17 is very interesting. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And he says very clearly, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, you remember that God, uh, Jesus had sent out 70 to do uh, the, the work of discipleship and so forth. And um, they came back and they were amazed because they said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Not their power, but the power of God. Uh, and I, I believe through the gospel, which is the power of God. And verse 18 says, And Jesus said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. <laughs> so, who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them? I, I know you can say God, but it was Jesus Christ, according to Colossians. He is the creator. And he says he watched Satan fall from heaven. Now, here's another thing that's really um, intense. And I think you need to hear it. Go to, um, go to Ephesians. Ephesians. And I'm, I'm going to quit with this, actually, because we have communion. And there's so much more to say. But Ephesians, I believe it is in chapter 6. Yes, 6.12. In Ephesians 6.12, we read, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, when he was cast down from heaven and the presence of God to earth, he inhabits the environs of our atmosphere. Okay, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Frightening stuff, this. And the earth lies in his hands. So the next time you're upset with somebody that's not saved and the way that they're behaving, the way that they're speaking, uh, maybe the way they're coming up against you, remember that they're fully under the control of the wicked one. They're in his hands. And the only thing that will get them out of his hands is for them to repent, to see their own sinfulness and to ask God to please forgive them based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Then they will be saved and they will be safe from that influence anymore. Uh, that's the gospel, people. That's, that's what we're saved from. And we don't face the wrath of God, neither do we face the, the outstretched hand of Satan trying to, to bother us. So, let me say this. Since the original rebellion, Satan and the demonic rulers pursue their evil works on the earth and in the atmosphere. Ephesians 2, 2 is where it calls him the prince of the power of the air. And Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world in John fourteen thirty, The ruler of this world. When he came to Jesus and he said, if you bow down before me, Matthew chapter 4, right? If you bow down before me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. That was a bona fide offer, right? Because he is the ruler of the world. He could have given Jesus those kingdoms, but Jesus was not going to usurp his father's authority. In due time, he would take that authority 
And we read about that when he returns, right? And Paul called him the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He blinds their minds so that they can't even see the beauty of the gospel. And he opposes God and hinders all who serve him, whether angelic or human. And their destiny in divine judgment God has prepared a special place of confinement for Satan, his demons, and everybody who follows him in rebellion. That would include human beings as well. It's called the lake of fire, or hell. It's described as a place of everlasting punishment and torment. And the terrible reality of everlasting punishment for those who oppose God cannot be taken figuratively. Don't don't go that way. Take it literal. The Bible is clear that the lake of fire is a literal place that will be revealed as at a yet future age. Hell was not created for mankind. But people who refuse to accept the gospel and bend the knee to God are thrown into the company of those who follow their God, Lucifer, Satan. And they will experience hell separation from God for eternity. But hell was created for Satan and his angels. And man will go there if they persist in following Satan. So as we come to communion today, think about these things. And the gospel is, is very simple. The gospel just says this. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are separate from our creator God. We were born in sin. We're born separate from God. And the only thing that can rectify that is by admitting that you're separate from God and trusting that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin so that all your sins can be forgiven, past, present, and future, if you just bend the knee. The problem is we're too proud often. We're too proud. We think it's too simple, and it's not. That pride will get you every time. But if you do repent and you do trust God to have paid for your sins, you're forgiven. It's finished, Jesus said. And you're safe. That's, you're saved. And if you've done that, please partake of the Lord's table together with us today. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the gospel And when we delve into these areas of the supernatural, it staggers our imagination. It's a bit frightening. And yet, there's safety. We even read in the psalm, Psalm 34, how, how you surround us. The angel of the Lord will surround those who take refuge in him, who also fear him. That fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. And fearing God puts God in his proper place as God Almighty over us and we as mere creatures created in his image. Oh, Lord, I pray that if anybody's heart's being tugged on right now, that they just give up their own pride and submit themselves to Jesus Christ once and for all. Thank you for hearing our prayers now in Jesus' name. Amen.